Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hey folks, Roland Martin here, broadcasting live from Las Vegas, site of Alpha Phi Alpha's National Convention. Today is Thursday, July 25th, 2019. Uh, coming up on Roland Martin on the filter, 2020 presidential candidates uh, made their cases at the NAACP Candidates Forum in Detroit on yesterday. We will discuss that and show you what they had to say and talk about it. Uh, sexologist Dr. Rachel Ross, she's being accused of fat-shaming actress Leela Rashawn after photos came out uh, detailing uh, Nicole Murphy kissing her husband Antoine Fuqua. Uh, Dr. Rachel says when people were confident, she talked about the photos of Leela Rashawn and her weight gain, and she says as a doctor, there's some issues there. We will break this thing down. I can't wait for that conversation. A new report reveals that student debt threatens the well-being of an entire generation of students of color and their families. Plus, ASAP Rocky is still locked up in Sweden, and Meek Mill gets a new trial. Also, folks, Ebony and Jet Magazine photos are headed to a new home. We'll tell you who bought them in an auction. Also, today's crazy-ass white people segment, white woman, I got black friends, but she called two sisters the N-word. Hmm, it's time to bring the funk 
from Las Vegas on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. here broadcasting live from Las Vegas, site of Alpha Phi Alpha's our annual convention. I'm glad to be here with all the brothers. Uh, more than 2,000 are here. It has been quite a busy week the last couple of days. I have been in Detroit for the NAACP 110th annual convention. Of course, that wrapped up last night uh, with their presentation of the Sping Arm Medal. Now, yesterday, there were uh, 10 2020 presidential candidates who showed up for the candidates forum for the NAACP, making their bids for the black vote. Here's a roundup of what those candidates had to say. We all stand on broad shoulders of those who came before us and fought a good fight. And the way that I think about this moment in time is that they passed us a baton in this relay race. And the question will be, what do we do with the moment that we have it? And what I know is that the folks in this room are leading on all of those things that we know we must fight for. Education, housing, economic wealth, and, and security. And I will tell you that as President of the United States, those will, as they have always been, be my priorities. I know that this is an inflection moment in the history of our country. It is a moment in time where we are being required to look in a mirror and ask a question, that question being, who are we? And what we know, NAACP, is we are better than this. And so this is a moment in time where we must fight for the best of who we are and fight we will. And this is not a new fight for us. We are up to this fight. We know how to fight the good fight when it's about fighting for equality and fairness and justice. We know this fight. And I come from a family of fighters. My parents were active in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. My sister and I joke we grew up surrounded by a bunch of adults who spent full time marching and shouting about this thing called justice. And it is why Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston and Constance Baker Motley and all of those broad shoulders upon whom we stand fought that good fight. And so now it is ours with the baton that we have. And I will tell you, I am prepared to fight for the America we believe in. We have always been deep of faith and we have always believed in what can be unburdened by what has been. That is the fight before us and we will win. I don't have to tell anybody in this room that we are living in an in unprecedented moment in American history. We have a president who is a racist, a president who is a pathological liar, and a president who is trying to divide the American people up 
based on the color of their skin, where they were born, or their religion. Now, Trump may be crazy, he may be a racist, but he is not stupid. He is doing what demagogues have always done, and that is to pick on minorities, to divide people up in order to gain power. The antidote, in my view, to what Trump is doing is exactly the opposite. And what our campaign is about is bringing people together, black and white and Latino, Asian American and Native American, around an agenda that works for all of us, not just the 1%. And when we talk about Medicare for all as a human right, we also talk about the disparities in the healthcare system. We talk about the need for more black doctors and nurses and end the absurdity of infant mortality rates in the black community two and a half times the white community. When we talk about wealth and income inequality, we talk about the absurdity of white families owning 10 times more than black families. And time for questions, sir. Etc. <laughs> I come to you at a moment of great crisis in this country, a crisis at a time when America's working better and better and better and better for a thinner and thinner slice at the top, while it leaves everyone else behind. The central question of my life's work has been, what's happening to working families in America? Why is the road getting so much rockier and so much steeper? And for families of color, even rockier and even steeper. And the answer is, it's no accident. Race lies right at the heart of this issue. Look around us. Hate crimes are on the rise. The black-white wealth gap continues to increase. Uh, voting rights seconds. are undercut. None of that is an accident. We live in an America where the plan of the President of the United States is to turn people, working people, against working people. All right. Based, let me just finish, I'll take it at the end. Okay. <laughs> based on color, based on change. Because here's the important part. We have got to make change in this country, not little changes around the edge. Big structural change, that's why I'm in this fight. Hey folks, look, it's good to be back. I've had the chance to be with you all my whole career. You got me started. Hey Jess, how are you? Got me started back in Delaware. I'm a lifetime member. I got involved early on when I got back from law school. My city was in flames because of Dr. King being assassinated. I became a public defender. I'd been working with the NAACP then and, uh, and now. And, uh, you know, uh, there's an old expression, y'all brought me to the dance. And uh, I'm still dancing with you. The fact of the matter is that uh, there's a lot at stake. We're really in a battle for the soul of the country right now. And we have a president who's done everything to divide us, to split us apart. And this is not who we are as a nation. We've never fully lived up to the notion, we the people, or we hold these truths self-evident, but we've never abandoned them before. And this president has abandoned them. And the single most important thing we have to do for all I want to do, from criminal justice reform to, to education, 
to a whole range of issues from global warming on is nothing happens unless we defeat Donald Trump, flat out. That's number one. Number two, it seems to me that we also want to make sure that, uh, you know, we're in a position where we have a, you know, there's no one solution to any of the problems that exist in the systemic racism that is here. I did a lot of work here in Detroit, 26 seconds left. The president put me in charge of getting Detroit back on its feet. I was able to cherry pick the best administration. We came in and we dealt with the problems. And one of the things we found out is that there's nothing, there's nothing the community cannot do given half a chance. And that's what this is all about. All right, folks, that was not all of the candidates. And so uh, several others spoke as well. Also, Marianne Williamson, she actually spoke the day before. We actually live streamed that. You can check it out on YouTube. If also, if you want to see all of uh, the um, presentations by the, by the presidential candidates, Democratic candidates, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And we actually live streamed that. We're the only black news source to actually do so. And so it's right there on the YouTube channel. So check it out. And don't forget to subscribe and turn on your live notifications when you do so. Let's go to our panel right now. Dr. Greg Carr, Chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Dr. Julian Malvo, Economist and President Emera at Bennett College. And Michael Brown, former Vice Chair of the DNC Finance Committee. Uh, Greg, you should be here with all the alphas here in Las Vegas. Brothers, uh, lots of black and old gold. <laughs> you got uh, the original the black and old gold. Omega, Michael Brown, <laughs> is real jealous. Yes, sir. <laughs> he, hey, he complimented you on that, on that outfit, though. I, I, uh, thought it was, I thought it was purple and gold. I couldn't tell. Oh, nah, you know it wasn't purple and gold. No, son. Come on, brother. <laughs> now, son, anybody knows what black and gold looks like, so yeah. don't even try it. Yeah, they do. You know how our children get sometimes. So they look really. <laughs> All right, so let's get right to it. Greg, I want to start with you. Um, your thoughts on, again, we live streamed all of the candidates on yesterday. Uh, just your thoughts on what uh, the uh, candidates had to say talking to the NAACP. Well, first of all, Roland, for everybody viewing, if you didn't go to uh, Roland Martin Unfiltered and look not only at yesterday's forum, but all the NAACP coverage, I thought uh, the resolution that they passed on mm -hmm. uh, Brother Green to say impeach Donald Trump, the, the whole coverage has been fantastic. So watching those two hours, a couple of things jumped out. Bernie Sanders is getting a little bit sharper on his message. I think some of those young uh, sisters who he's hired and people around him are, are pushing him. Elizabeth Warren's discussion of the wealth tax I thought was important. Uh, Kamala Harris, of course, would be well-received and strong in that conversation. Joe Biden looked like he needed his notes, which is, you know, I guess Biden it needs his notes. But if you look at the polls, more importantly, in Iowa, in South Carolina, and in New Hampshire, Biden is leading in all three. Uh, Warren and, and Sanders seem to be fighting it out, except in South Carolina. But finally, in South Carolina, Harris is polling at about 12% in the most recent mm. poll, which leads us then to understand that before that crowd yesterday, she's speaking to more or less the establishment folk who are going out there and knock on the doors and get out to vote. And she doesn't seem yet to have pierced that crowd. So, you know, it's very interesting to see them talk, but ultimately this is going to come down to attracting new voters and new blood into the, into the party. Uh, I dare say this, Julian, uh, when I look at uh, the reception based upon the audience, uh, mm -hmm. I would say the two people who received uh, the loudest applause uh, was Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they, they spoke very close to each other. And, uh, but the reality is, and I think to Greg's point, that people need to understand uh, Vice President Joe Biden has spoken to the NAACP uh, more than anybody else. When he mm -hmm. comes there, 
he's able to say, I'm a life member. Uh, he can sit here and he talked about individuals who were in the audience uh, who he's known quite some time. He's name checking people. Mm -hmm. uh, I was backstage and I was, I was watching the dynamic of all of the different candidates. Uh, and so they were on the main stage. There was another press area uh, backstage. And, that, and I was watching how they flowed. And in fact, I actually went to another area where the media wasn't allowed. That's what I keep saying. Uh, and I said, so one of the people asked me, they said, well, what about the rest of them? I said, well, they, they ain't been here all week. They just got here. Mm. I've been here the whole week. And so I was in another area. <laughs> and out of all the candidates, Biden knew all of the top leadership. Uh -huh. He knew, and in fact, he had a very long meeting uh, with several NAACP officials afterwards where many of the other candidates pretty much came and left. Biden has roots in the African-American community. Not only was he, of course, uh, President Obama's VP, which endears him to a lot of people, but he also, as you say, he knows everybody. He's been around a long time, and he's paid his dues in terms of the NAACP. I dare say, much as I love my homegirl, uh, Senator Harris, and much as I don't love him as much, but uh, Cory Booker, are they life members of the NAACP? Just ask him. I mean, that's a legitimate kind of question. I mean, I, on their way up, you know, did they did they stop? Did they make a pit stop in the black community? Are they more interested in career building than community building? And so that that's what comes up. Uh, I saw Joe Biden. I saw him a couple times, but last time he was with Reverend Jackson at the Rainbow Push uh, conference. Similar, and this was right after the little flap with uh, Senator Harris. And despite that, uh, where frankly he lost a lot of points with a lot of people. He came out there and did a great job, had a private meeting with Reverend beforehand and did the same thing, called people out, called out names, glad to see you, you know, we go back. Now, Greg, I'm going to say something to you about those notes. Joe Biden is best with notes. <laughs> I mean, Joe Biden does not have notes. He gets to run in his mouth. He goes over the river and through the woods. Uh, did the same thing at Reverend's. A bunch of us were talking at the table. We said when he uses his notes, he seems a little stilted and scripted. But this is a brother who needs to be scripted. Because when he is unscripted, anything can come out of his mouth. So I applaud him for knowing when to use his notes and when not to. <laughs> Touche. Uh, Mike, uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there uh, who is saying, oh, my goodness, you guys are out of touch. NLACP is played out. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. Let me paint the picture for the people who don't understand infrastructure. First and foremost, the NAACP is a nonpartisan organization. The organization cannot make endorsements. But the reality is they have 2,200 chapters. Mm -hmm. National Action Network and the National Urban League throw in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and you can add a number of others. They don't even get to 500 combined. And so for the people out there, who say, well, it doesn't matter, uh, candidate, how they appeal to the NAACP. No, what you need is those grassroots, on the ground folks who go precinct by precinct, yep. who, work with the, who work with the NAACP, but who also work on campaigns. That's who you need, and that's why going before them matters. Absolutely. And and Roland, as you know, but I like to give full disclosure when I talk about Vice President Biden. He taught me in law school. Um, and But when you watch him, he is very similar to President Clinton. They know everybody in the black community. They know, and I know the Me Too movement has changed how people can campaign with hands on the shoulder and all that kind of stuff. But 
when you watch Vice President Biden, very similar, not like, not quite. I mean, Bill Clinton's like the varsity, and then you have everybody else. But uh, Vice President Biden is very similar to that, and you're exactly right. When he goes into rooms, and that's part of politics, is knowing people, having relationships. People feel comfortable with you. Not to say other people aren't good, too, or qualified as well, but uh, you, 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 you tend to go with who you're comfortable with. And, I, and of course, at some point in time, the 800-pound gorilla, former President Obama, is going to come out and do something. And when that happens, whether it's to shut everything down and then they pick the nominee before uh, the convention. Uh, if you recall, back in the late 80s when my father was chair, there were a lot of great candidates running from Gephardt to Rockefeller mm -hmm. to Clinton. And, but my father, he said, you know what, this is great and you guys have run a great fight. But it's time to shut this down, and I hope Chairman Perez does the same thing because you can't have Trump raising all. Sorry, I hate saying his name. You can't have 45 raising all this money, getting ready, us beating up on each other, without at some point in time saying, you know what, the fight is done. You ran a good fight. Time to move on. Let's get behind the nominee. Because what happened also to Secretary Clinton was when you got to the general election. A lot of the Bernie people were still pissed off from the primary mm -hmm. and didn't come out. So this time, same thing. If your person does not win, that doesn't mean you take your ball and go home. You know, Michael, I'm glad you mentioned well, your dad what, because... Very well, hold on, Julian. Hold on, Julian. It was very interesting, again, being in the room and watching the reaction. Amy Klobuchar, virtually no response from the audience. Mm -hmm. Beto O'Rourke, virtually no response from the audience. Um, when you looked at, I mean, obviously, uh, Sanders, when you looked at, I mean, not, not, uh, O'Rourke, you know, people, people thought it was, it, it, was, it was funny where he was, he would often stand up, things along those lines. Uh, but again, how do you connect with that audience? And what people need to understand, and, and as people who are watching, again, elections are won by boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. You can spend tons of money on media. You can sit here and run ads, you can do all those different things, you can have great speeches. But if you don't have boots on the ground, then you're not going to win. That's why going to groups like the NAACP are critically important, because you want, Julian, those organizers. Mm -hmm. You want the people who literally are going to take their Saturdays and go door to door, who are going to go block walking. You want the people who get the list the printout of the folks who are voting, who, uh, who voted in the last election, who said we're going to go door to door. And that's the thing. I think there are a lot of people out here, young folks and older, who don't understand the mechanics of, of, of elections. Sending a tweet as an endorsement is not politicking. It is that face-to-face -face engagement, and that's why boots on the ground matter. Julian, go ahead. No, I, I, the only thing I was going to say earlier was just that I'm glad that Michael mentioned his father, because in terms of political skills, Nobody had skills like that. Ron Brown remembered everybody, knew everybody, made sure that everybody felt like they were part of the team. And I don't, you know, Biden does that. I don't see anybody else really out there doing that, especially with black people. It's unfortunate that Kamala and Corey, in particular, don't have that. Klobuchar has been many places. She's very smart, but she gets no bounce whatsoever. Roland, your point about the 2200 chapters is probably the most important point in terms of looking at organizing black people. Because as you say, Rainbow, National Action Network, none of these folks have that kind of a national reach. And that national reach is very important. But what's also important is to have the local politicals. And although the NAACP is a non-political organization, 
the members of the NAACP are very political people. Many of them are local elected officials. I mean, many of them are pastors in these large churches that have thousands of members that they can mobilize. So it's really important uh, to understand the whole concept of grassroots. Now, the next thing we have to understand, though, is not just voter registration, it's voter turnout. And so I'm praying that people don't focus so much on registration. If you register someone, they didn't come out, it doesn't matter. So once you register somebody, follow up with them and make sure they get to the polls. That's what's going to make. We have to basically energize the base. A lot of people are going to have to get out to get rid of the orangutan because, you know, <laughs> I, I'm really frightened after watching Mueller and Mueller saying that he could be indicted. That man is going to figure out a way to stay in office if he has to steal. And we have to stop it. Let, let me, I want to talk about this here uh, before I go to my next subject. Uh, so the folks in the control room, tell Dr. Rachel, I'm going to deal with her uh, very shortly. Uh, but, but, but this is what is jumping out at me. So last night, uh, uh, we had a public program for Alpha Phi Alpha. And the first panel, we had black mayors. Uh, the mayors of Birmingham, Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and some other cities across the country. But then they had me moderate the second part of the panel. And uh, Greg, suffice to say, things got a little heated uh, because my part was to talk about the issue of solutions. And we had, all, we had members from, from, the, from the Divine Nine organizations uh, who were on there. Uh, and I'm bringing this up because, Greg, you're an Alpha. Julian, you're a Delta. Uh, Michael, you're an Omega. So all of us are members of Divine Nine organizations. And I keep saying this. I keep saying this, and I'm going to say it to our blue in the face. I spoke to the Delta Convention. And folks, if you missed that speech, go to my YouTube channel. You'll see it there. When I gave the Brotherhood speech to the Alphas two years ago, I said it there. I said it other places. And that is, Divine Now organizations represent more than 2 million African Americans across the country. If AARP, if, if the African Americans who are members of AARP, if they were a separate organization, they would represent the largest black organization in the country. So collectively, the Divine Nine actually uh, is like the second largest black group. And Greg, what I keep saying to them, is that we have all, we have, first of all, we are organizations that are self-funded, not dependent upon corporations, but I do believe that they're wasting our power. I do believe that we are not effectively maximizing our reach. If I talk about 2,200 chapters of the NAACP, you take the Divine Nine, you likely have more chapters than that. When I talk about, I'm gonna use Ohio for an example. Uh, State Representative Alicia Reese is trying to get this ballot initiative to get uh, the right to vote enshrined in the Ohio Constitution. They've got about 100,000 signatures. They're going to need about three or 400,000. The AKAs are the only Divine Nine organization that has made it their state mission to help do that. There are more than 120 Divine Nine chapters in Ohio alone, which means that if each Divine Nine chapter, Greg, said we're going to be responsible to get 2,000 signatures of registered voters, the Divine Nine alone could supply enough of the ballots, enough of the signatures to get it on the ballot. I believe that black organizations and churches on those lines, we are not effectively utilizing our infrastructure, Greg. No, you're absolutely right, Roland. I mean, you know, Let's just look at where we are. You've laid it out, and, and you say you've been saying this consistently all the years I've known you. 
I go back to, uh, we go back to the election in Alabama to get, put Doug Jones in the Senate. And I remember in that time when you were at TV One, you would consistently have not only the folks who were doing the on-the-ground stuff in Alabama with the new organizations, but you had the sororities of attorneys. And of course, you've been talking about Ohio all along. Let's look at where we are. Um, the Deltas, for example, Delta Days, that Malvo knows this. I was down, you know, down at the, uh, the Hilton here in Washington. A ballroom full, and you look up, and there's Marsha Fudge and Jeanetta Cole and Julianne Malvo and all these people. And they, then they went to Capitol Hill. So they're lobbying, I mean, you know, second to none among the Divine Nine, as far as I'm concerned. And you mentioned the AKAs and the Omegas and the Alphas and everyone else. So, so there is that infrastructure. But to, to, to your point, we're at a crossroads now, I think, in, in our history in this country. Those kind of what are now perceived by many of our people as elite organizations are often misunderstood. Uh, you look at the intergenerational work of the NAACP, you know, Tiffany Lofton and all those, Keith Crane and them, you know, they, you've got young people, the elders, and they're not trying to hold on to power. I know there's about to be a presidential election out there with our frat brothers in, in, in Nevada, and on the agenda is what is Alpha going to do going to the 21st century? But here's finally where I think we have the real challenge. We've got to now figure out how to talk to the vast majority of our people who are not in these organizations. And that's going to require us to forsake some of this perception that we are somehow separate from them. And now, how do we do that? That is really where the alchemy comes in, because increasingly from LeBron James to Beyonce and Jay-Z, you got people who didn't go to college, people who never set foot in the college, who are now being turned to right. by a new generation who are saying they're going to be our leaders. And if we're not careful, we're going to be led by a bunch of celebrities and ball players and musicians when, in fact, we should. this is the moment when we should be stepping out and say, no, it's time for these institutions to renew their leadership for the, for the future. You know, Roland. Uh, Julian, the reason I'm raising that, the reason I'm raising this is because what I am trying to push these organizations to do is to say, flood the zone. That is, in all of these places where African Americans are, we folks should be seeing red and white, black and gold, purple and gold, blue and white, blue and gold, crimson and cream, brown and gold, pink and green. And because and then when people say, man, I don't know what y'all do, they can say, oh, no, no, no. I saw 200 AKs who showed up at the school board meeting. I saw 300 Deltas show up at the county uh, commissioner meeting. I saw uh, on four consecutive weekends black neighborhoods blanketed uh, with folks weighing their letters. People mm -hmm. have to see the divine night in action as opposed to hear people saying, we're doing it, but folks no. don't see it. You're absolutely right. I mean, I'm with you in terms of my frustration uh, with my own organization and the others. We have more, you know, in terms of education, in terms of wealth. We have more than those folks who didn't go to college, didn't, didn't step foot on a college, as you say. But we don't use it. We don't leverage it properly. I mean, we, and we hide behind social action, which, you know, I love social action, but we also have to talk about political action. Now, all of our organizations say they're non-political. Fine. But you can register voters. You can be out there. You, you know, our teachers ought to be ensuring that when people graduate from high school, they have a voter registration card in their hand. And between Delta and AK and the other women's organizations, we are the teachers that are touching most of these young people. So that's what we need to do. It's very frustrating because, you know, we have the, all these rituals that we deal with. We have all this pomp and circumstance. And some of that is very nice and some of that is very good. But let's talk about what we're doing for the community. Let's talk about how we're transforming things. And we could. But again, um, unfortunately, too often we do the milk toasty thing of, uh, you know, moving our mouths, but not moving our feet. And I, I mean, I'm a little critical 
Um, but I think we have to be. We have to be critical of these organizations because, well, as, as a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, I lean on my founders. These sisters bust into the women's suffrage march, bust into it. They bogarted. They said the black women were not welcome, but they came anyway. So we need to keep coming anyway, keep coming anyway, keep coming anyway. Mike, I'll give an example. This will be the last point on this uh, that, that jumps out here. Um, when the National Association of Black Journalists called out CNN's Jeff Zucker for no black executive producers, no black VPs, no black SDPs, no black EDPs, and no black direct reports, I personally reach out to um, uh, the five largest Divine Nine organizations. I reached out to Alpha Phi Alpha, Delta Sigma Theta, Kappa Alpha Psi, Alpha Kappa Alpha, and Omega Psi Phi. The first to respond with the letter standing with NABJ was Alpha Phi Alpha. Got the letter in 24 hours. The second to respond was Delta Sigma Theta. The third to respond was Omega Sapphire. That was it. Mm. And what I said is, how hard is it to write a letter? <laughs> because if you're afraid to even write a letter, mm. come on, you can't tell me you're gonna be out there in the streets. Hello. And what I said is, the signal has to be sent. When a letter is dropped saying we represent 250,000 or 300,000 or 400,000 or 500,000 members, trust me, that gets the attention of white executives at CNN and their corporate parent AT&T. But if we are afraid to even write a letter, you can't convince me that we are really going to go hard to have boots on the ground. Michael, final comment. Well, you mentioned, I, don't, I, think, I think everyone's kind of mentioned the word, if they didn't, um, they use the word similar, which is mobilization. And there's never really been that. And maybe we'll have an opportunity if Vice President Biden is the nominee and selects Senator Harris, because we have never had someone from the Divine Nine on that presidential trail. I'm not sure if the former First Lady was Greek. I don't think she no. was. No. We, know the first, we know the president was No, she was wasn't. Not. We know the president was not. Um, and we know Senator Harris is. So maybe this will be the first time the real actual mobilization of the Divine Nine can happen for a purpose. But here's the piece. We don't need, we don't need somebody black to be a member of the Divine Nine in order for us to use yes. our power. Correct. That's all I'm saying. And I just want, I'm just, I, I, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get, and this is the last point I'm going to make before I go to, I go to Dr., Dr. Rachel. <clears throat> What I am trying to get black people to do is to stop saying, well, we should do this and this and this and say, wait a minute, what is the infrastructure that we do have? What is the infrastructure of the AME church? Right. Come on. What's the infrastructure of AME Zion? What's the infrastructure of Kojic? What's the infrastructure of black Methodists? What's the infrastructure of black Baptists? You take those groups. Then you talk about links. Then you talk about Jack and, D, Jack and Jill. Then you talk about 100 black men. What I'm trying to get us to do is realize we literally have infrastructure that's international, national, state, regional, regional, state, grad, undergrad, and initiatives for folks in elementary, middle, and high school. And if we say, wait a minute, if I put my infrastructure to work, 
then I can have greater impact. And so that's what I hope uh, the goal is. All right, folks, over the weekend, uh, actress Leela Rashawn uh, deleted her social media account as the photos came out showing uh, her husband, Antoine Fuqua, the director, uh, kissing uh, N uh, uh, Nicole Murphy. Now, social media went nuts, slamming uh, Nicole Murphy, say, uh, Antoine Fuqua, saying, how are you cheating? Uh, but then, but this would also then happen. But then people began to talk about uh, when photos of Lila were shown. And people saw her, of course, in Harlem Nights, but a character of Sunshine. She was in Boomerang as well. And people began to talk about her size and, oh my goodness, look how much weight she's put on. Well, Dr. Rachel Ross, who's a sexologist, uh, she also talked about this on her Facebook page, also in her live stream. And old people been blasting Dr. Rachel, saying she is fat shaming. And she's saying, no, we better learn to have some honest conversations when it comes to our relationships. Dr. Rachel joins us right now. So, Doc, first of all, uh, first of all, glad to have you here. Glad to be here, Roland. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, yeah. so for the folks who are watching, you're not one of these TV doctors who's a fake doctor. You are an actual doctor. You have a degree. I have an MD and a PhD. I'm a family medicine physician, board certified practicing family medicine physician and a clinical sexologist. So there we go. Let's put that out all right, there. So, <laughs> all right. So, so when, when you made your post talking about when you saw the photos, uh, different photos of Antoine Fuqua and Lila Rochelle, and let me also say this before I get to that. Everybody knows who watched this show. Uh, I don't waste my time on black celebrities who got married, who got divorced, who they dating, who they screwing, uh, kids they had. I don't, that's their personal business. I don't cover those stories. But I thought this was interesting because it reveals something. It, it took an entertainment story, a gossip story, but dealt with something else on the relationship side. Uh, on the health side, on the mental side, that's why I wanted to talk to you. And so you wrote this piece where you where you looked at these photos and you talked about body language. You talked about what happens with black women when they get married when it comes to their health. Uh, and so uh, share your thoughts. Why did you weigh in on this topic the way that you did? Yeah, I appreciate you even asking. Now, now to me, I responded, you know, with body body chemistry and language, the minute I woke up and saw it, and I, as I think most of black America did, because what we saw there is our worst nightmare, right? Your husband kissing one of the most beautiful people in black America, right? You know, because there's no real coming back from that, right? So I looked at the pictures and their body language, and I said, oh my gosh, did someone pose for these pictures? Are they making an announcement? Do, do, does he want his wife to know that, hey, I, it's, it's me and this person now, because it looks very staged to me. So my immediate response was to then go and look and see couples, pictures of him and his wife together. And so as I'm clicking, I said, oh my gosh, there's no connection here. There absolutely isn't. And so when I turned to social media, everybody was talking about all the weight that she gained. So I looked immediately at the lack of connection, the, immediately at the fact that Layla Rashan no longer looks like the Layla Rashan I remember her to look like. 
And so I took to social media to immediately respond like, oh my God, the same response I would have given if that was my sister, my cousin, my patient. It wasn't about make a connection with your husband. Because at this point, when I saw the photo of him and Nicole Murphy, I said, well, that's his relationship with his wife is over now. So my response to her is, girl, go get yourself together and get your man back or anything like that. My response to her is like, okay, let's back up. We've obviously got some health challenges here. Now, as a physician practicing in Gary, Indiana for almost 20 years now, I can spot a health condition across the room. But to the untrained eye, it's obvious that she has health conditions too because she has gained probably 30 or 40 pounds. And you can never convince me that that amount of weight gain is going to be healthy for somebody. So couple all of this together with the fact that we know, studies show, that when men get married, their health improves. But we don't see the same type of data with women because women have a tendency- But you also, but but, but not. No, I'm sorry, so, so I, want, I want you to make that point, yes. but you said that in marriage, a woman's health worsens. Explain that. Yeah, so they studied almost 80,000 women between the ages of 50 and 79 for about three years, right? And what they did is they looked at the parameters of weight, waist circumference, use of alcohol, exercise habits, and diets. So the women who were divorced and the women who were single they actually fared better in all of these parameters. So before we thought relationships keep everybody healthy. Now we know if you're diagnosed with cancer and you're with somebody, you have a better tendency to make it through that situation. But what we don't know, we cannot say that marriage is as healthy for women as it is for men. And it's because we have a tendency to give ourselves away in the relationship. So my post is about self-love, self-care, take care of yourself. You know, we saw, you know, and, and what I like to do is take a celebrity situation and make it so that it relates to all of us because we've all been cheated. Doc, you, we've you, all cheated. Yes. You also, you also, want people to deal with the reality that 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 we are physical beings meaning we are attracted to things physically you you if you see a car but that's a bad car we don't have the same reaction to an ugly car uh when we see somebody that typically there's a physical thing that catches our eye that leads to getting to know somebody but the reality is i can't see your soul or your inner being because the reality is if i see you across the room i'm seeing the outside of you and and what i also got was i, I thought you were trying to get people to also deal with that understanding that when things do change to happen to us physically whether we are men or women it has an impact on somebody who we're with as to how they then treat us receive us or they still attracted to us, and you're saying, yo, you better pay attention to that and not act like it's not important. Oh, absolutely. Let, let me tell you something. People will show up in the office and they've lost a connection with their partner because of a new scent. Because they don't like the way he smells when he comes home from work. 
And, and believe it or not, that'll be the one thing. So if we can be not attracted to our partners because of a scent, certainly vision becomes a part of that. So, so yes, I mean, the, the elephant in the room is that Layla Rashan has gained a significant amount of weight. Now, there's, there's theories that it's related to uh, lupus and autoimmune conditions and things like that. But I want everyone to understand that if you have a physician who has you on so many steroids that you manage to gain 60 pounds, you need to change your doctor because it doesn't have to go like that. L look at Nick Cannon. Look at, look at um, uh, Gina. You know, we cannot continue to make excuses for things that, that we actually do have control over. So when it comes down Doc, to uh, you have to take care as, of yourself. Right. As a sexologist, do you believe that part of the issue is that we don't really want to have these really deep, hard, honest conversations about what happens when you are in a relationship and finances change, weight changes, uh, your emotional connection changes, your commitment to kids over your relationship changes, that part of this issue that when people cheat or when people actually get divorced is because we don't want to deal with this. Men and women don't want to confront the hard stuff. And then, frankly, what happens, it, it may lead to somebody cheating when, in fact, had you chose to not step out and had the conversation, you could have avoided that to either leave or stay. No, yeah, absolutely. I get questions all the time from people who are thinking about cheating. You know, they'll, they, they, they like my point of view because it's just realistic. You know, it just is what it is. And I've had husbands message me about weight gain. I've had husbands message me about illness. And my message is always very clear. You know, you really need to work with your wife or your husband to try to get things right. Now, we don't know what happened in this particular particular case, but what I can see when I look through the timeline of the pictures is that he steadily losing weight and she's steadily gaining weight. But I also know he put her through a, 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 a love child situation. So I know there was a lot of stress in the home there. And what I want people to understand is that stress will kill you. If you're in a, in a negative relationship, that can actually kill you and cause you to gain weight, cause you to end up with chronic illnesses. So what came first here, the chicken or the egg? We have no idea. But what we do know is that when we see those pictures of him with Nicole Murphy, we're looking at someone who is, you know, like a gazelle. Every woman is just like, can anyone, I mean, like, why is this happening to me? Why would he cheat on me with her? Of all people, there's, there's no competition there. So I think he was a jerk before all of this. But I also can see that this timeline of disconnect happened along with this trajectory of weight gain. And, and we, all, we have to take care of ourselves for ourselves. Now, the, the relationship right. part of things has to be important, too, but you've got to do it for yourself. All right, Dr. Rachel Ross, folks, uh, be sure to subscribe to her YouTube channel. Check her out. Uh, and, uh, Doc, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Man, any, 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 any time. Good talking to you, Roland.
All right, Doc. All right, thanks a lot. All right, folks, every black parent wants to see their child get the best possible education after high school graduation. Too often, the money is just not there, and that's where student loans come into play. The amount of outstanding debt and the number of borrowers affected have a significant impact on this country's economic well-being. Of course, the people most affected are black folks and other people of color. This week, the Center for Responsible Lending and the NAACP released a report that outlines the problem. And so we're going to talk about that. First, I want to go to my panel, Dr. Greg uh, Carr. I'll start with you. Look, you're a professor there at Howard University. And um, give folks an understanding of what you have witnessed yourself over these years as the cost of higher ed has increased. Have you seen a corresponding increase on uh, the pressure, depression, anxiety, if you will, of your students just to be able to get through and afford that degree. Absolutely. Um, you go around in the, the DMV, you know, into DC, Maryland, and Virginia, and you see so many of our students, not just Howard students, kids from Bowie State, kids from Morgan State and Coppin, working, waiting tables, working un incredible hours. They come to class, sometimes a, a kid is almost falling asleep. What's going on? You found out she worked a shift last night because she's still trying to make these tuition payments. And then you look mm -hmm. and you realize that when we, and I think we're all in the same age range, we could work our way through school with a job. That's impossible now. That's impossible. It's either you got a scholarship or you got a ridiculous loan, which then saddles your family with debt. And these are not debts that can be forgiven. And it has impact on everything from their academic performance to their capacity to concentrate, even on their post-graduation plans. And when you settle them finally with that kind of debt, that's a lifetime of debt. We're not talking about something to be paid off in 10 or 15 years. Even the Obamas only paid off their student debts after he was in the U.S. Senate. So, no, yeah, we, we see it every day, Roland. It, it's ridiculous. Julia Malvo, you were president of Bennett College. I remember working for WBON Radio mm -hmm. uh, and getting one of your distress phone calls saying we've got to raise $30,000 by X date to keep these young women who are seniors in school to keep them online to graduate. Um, and and, and I, I really think that a people today who are not in college, and maybe who don't also don't have kids who are in college, really don't understand how this thing has changed completely in the last 20 to 30 years. You know, Roland, I went to Boston College on a full ride. Um, the tuition was like $2,500. Uh, it was affordable. Uh, I had a little part-time job, but now as Greg said, I, I had students who were working 40 hours a week. They were working full-time. I had a child who was running a car wash. Uh, that, she, that She was the manager of a car wash, and she was in school, and she was pledging, and she was cray-cray. I mean, she really, she, she was just basic. she was sleeping two hours a night. The worst thing about it is, as all of this has occurred, the Pell Grant has been fairly steady. It has not gone up with tuitions. Uh, tuitions have gone up faster than the rate of inflation. Not only are we saddling folks for a lifetime, we're distorting their life choices. So if you have, a you graduate with $50,000 worth of loans, mm. okay, are you going to take the job on Wall Street or are you going to be a social worker? You're going to take the job that provides you with the most money because you might want to be a social worker. You love social work. You love people, but you got to pay those loans. Right. Uh, I think so. Elizabeth Warren, uh, some of the people were talking about free tuition. President Obama, who talked about reducing, paying a percentage of your income on, on the loan. All of those things make sense. But parents and students, I mean, the, the pressure is enormous. And we do say... Um, 
you know, we want folks to go to college. We want, but many people just simply cannot afford it, or people are doing things. I mean, I have a friend who says his kids can go to college, but they got to go to community college first, mm -hmm. so they could pay. He could save that money for them to do four year. And he's adamant about it. He said, you know, you know, unless you get a full ride, you will go to community college. We will save some money, and then you'll be able to go to your four year. And his thing is, look, right. if you graduate from Harvard. Um, you still got a Harvard degree, even though you started out at San Francisco Community College. So the pressure is just enormous. The Center for Responsible Lending right. does very good work. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of policy stuff in there that we need to really follow up on. I want to bring in right now Ashley Harrington. She is Senior Policy Counsel at the Center for Responsible Lending. Ashley, this is, of course, uh, a huge issue impacting so many people. Student loan debt is exceeding a trillion dollars. And so... Uh, what must people learn from this report uh, that y'all put together with the NAACP? Merlin, thanks so much for having me. Um, I agree with all the comments that are made so far, and, and we really need to talk about this as a national crisis. It's a civil rights issue, it's an economic justice issue, but we are really on the verge of a national crisis that's going to affect, going to affect our entire economy, and in fact, already is um, because of student debt. People are delaying buying homes, they're delaying starting businesses, they're delaying starting um, saving for retirement. And so these are uh, these are effects that are going to be felt beyond just individual families and individuals. These are going to affect the community and the larger society as a whole. And so we, we need to really be thinking about the fact that there is over $1.5 trillion in outstanding debt held by 44 million Americans, and that the default numbers are significantly high, and they're particularly high for students of color and black students in particular, and we need to be concerned about that and recognize how we got here. Uh, and so what do we do, though? I mean, you have the candidates who are saying one thing, but the reality is Congress could act right now, and they simply haven't. Absolutely. So uh, we advocate for a number of solutions. One, we need to streamline repayment, right? The repayment system right now is is completely wacky. There are numerous repayment plans. Even income-based repayment plan is hard to access. Each plan has a different amount of what you would pay. So it needs to be completely restreamed. Uh, streamlined. We need to get down to one plan that in the income-based repayment plan that really is based off 8% of your discretionary income instead of 10% or more. Because even under the current income-based system, we have seen that it's been completely unaffordable for many borrowers who are having to forego other necessities in order to make their student loan payments because we know that the consequences of default on student loans are pretty severe. Um, you can get your Social Security check um, offset. You can get your wages garnished. You can get your tax refunds garnished. And so we are seeing that happen. Um, so we'd like to see the repayment plan um, drastically changed. We need to hold student loan services accountable. And one big thing we're advocating for is there does need to be large-scale, across-the-board debt cancellation. Even as low as $10,000 would have a significant impact on the ability of people to really contribute to this economy and to get back on track with their student debt. Uh, Michael Brown, what I don't understand is a whole bunch of white folks out there who voted for Trump who broke as hell uh, <laughs> and, and would support debt cancellation. And, you know, you, you wonder why this thing hasn't really blown up, how, it's had, how it really hasn't uh, gotten effective. Donald Trump, frankly, hasn't done a damn thing in this area. In fact, Betsy DeVos in the Department of Education, his secretary, uh, has allowed, frankly, the profiteers from for-profit colleges, folks who have been ripping folks off to come back in, removing a lot of the um, um, a lot of the constraints put on them by the Obama administration. And so, do you expect this to be um, a significant part of this campaign? 
And uh, is it something that if you're a Democrat, you should be running hard on because this thing affects black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, doesn't matter, men, women, gay, straight, uh, folks from every region of the country? Um, they should be talking about it uh, a lot, and there are several reasons. Um, and we've talked about this before. We, we had the chat about the uh, uh, returning citizens voting in Florida, and there was this perception that it was kind of like a black thing, and that's why a lot of the white folks in the panhandle weren't getting involved. Same thing with this. Folks think it's, oh, this is a black Latino thing. It doesn't really impact me. But as you mentioned, and whether there's a lot of white folks in Appalachia that would love to get their, their school and college debt um, retired. So, yes, it needs to be an issue, but, some, but that messaging has to be more encompassing than when you talk about, oh, this, is a, this will help black people. Yes, it will help black people, but when you're running for president, you have to help all the people. And, yes, you can care about certain segments. Clearly, 45 cares about a certain segment. But you have to run and be part of the whole community that you're running for. And so you can mention it, you have to talk about it, and you have to have surrogates that do that for you, that don't look like you necessarily, that can go into those communities and talk about it. So, yes, they should be talking about it, it should be part of anybody's campaign. Uh, St uh, Ashley, final comment. I think he's absolutely right. In 2016, nearly 70% of all graduating seniors had student debt. So this is a universal problem, and there's things we can do about it. We can do income, we can do broad cancellation, we can drastically increase the Pell Grant, and we can and we can find a way to do debt-free college, and we, and we must. It's an actual imperative that we do so. All right, we really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you. All right, folks, rapper ASAP Rocky has been charged with criminal assault in Sweden <laughs> and will remain in jail until his trial. The prosecution will proceed, although the rapper claims self-defense and provocation. He got a lot of celebrities supporting Kanye West and recruited Donald Trump to intervene on his behalf. Trump called the Swedish prime minister and was told that in Sweden, everyone is equal before the law. Sounds like a little shade to me. Also, rapper Meek Mill is having a much better week after spending more than 10 years on probation for drug and gun charges. The Pennsylvania Superior Court overturned his 2008 conviction Wednesday and granted him a new trial. He no longer has a criminal record. He also got a lot of high-profile support, including fellow rapper and entrepreneur Jay-Z and others. Um, real quick here, uh, Greg, what do you make, again, of these two cases? It's very interesting because of the, I really love my, I love my black people because... Um, uh, ASAP Rocky made some comments uh, where people swear that that was that was seen as out of touch, saying pretty much I ain't got those problems. I live in Beverly Hills, uh, but even though he's in Sweden, uh, he is learning what it's like to be part of that criminal justice system, and now all of a sudden he's seeking support. A lot of people said, "Yeah, now you know what the hell we were talking about." Roland, it can all go horribly wrong in a split second. We're having this conversation on what would have been Emmett Till's 78th birthday had he not been killed by white terrorists on the live of white woman Carolyn Bryant, who still walks the earth. In the split second that he was in there with his cousins in that little place in Money, Mississippi, his whole life changed. Asa, here we are in 2019, and ASAP Rocky, if you don't understand anything else, brother, there's no black woman, no black man alive on this planet that can't be touched by white supremacy. And Elon Omar said the other day, which got her, you know, again, Elon Omar looks to be, she doesn't look like she has any fear. She said, these white men, you got you to gotta watch them. That's who you have to be mm -hmm. alert for. 
And at the end of the day, man, there's no way, you know, if, if nothing else. And Meek Mill looks like he does, he gonna straighten up and fly right for the rest of his natural life, because he has figured out this this system is set up to have two strikes against you as you coming out the womb. That's for women or men. Hmm. Uh, Michael, what was very interesting in the Meek Mill case, uh, that was a black judge uh, who was really holding him to task, uh, a sister, and, uh, and of course, uh, you know, he wanted a new trial and for her to be not involved in his case at all. And so, they, again, that's one of those things where a lot of times when you talk about criminal justice system, black versus white, his biggest, the person who he was fighting with the most was a black female judge. But it's still the criminal justice system. Um, no matter who is in that robe, um, the uh, the deck is just not stacked uh, in our favor. And, and to the to the rocky, rocky situation in Sweden, um, you know, the doc and I, were, Professor and I, were talking about it a second ago during your, during your break or when you were setting up the, the segment. And you and I talked about it a couple weeks ago when I was on. You know, I get that these little these little folks were annoying them. I understand, but you gotta walk away. Mm -hmm. The whole macho, oh, I got to do what I got to do. No, because now look at you. You're in a jail cell with an apple and some water when you could be <laughs> at the Four Seasons in Sweden chilling. Come on. So it's sometime, <laughs> and you had bodyguards with you. How tough are you that you beat up two little white boys? Walk away. Okay, so they threw their headphones at you. I mean, you know, it's every time it comes up, my kids and I talk about it all the time. And, mm. and of course, we're on the opposite sides of the issue. No, you got to do what you got. No, 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 you don't. Not all the time. Sometimes you say, you know what, young fellas, we'll send you some CDs. So it was whatever you need to say <laughs> to de-escalate de the situation and walk away. They chose not to do it. Now look at them. And I, this is the worst State Department you want coming to fight for you. Hello. I tell you that. You, you want Pompeo picking up the phone for you? <laughs> so I, I don't know. You know, Roland. All right, uh, Julian, go ahead. On the Meek Mill case, though, I mean, I know that it was a black woman judge, but he mouthed off to that judge just a couple of times, and that was the issue. Sister was like, no, I'm not having it. She tried to work with him. So, you know, when Michael talked about walking away, I mean, you do have to know when to hold him and when to fold him and know when to hold your tongue. I mean, the criminal justice system is not for us. Whether the judge is black, the prosecutor is black, whoever, it's not for us. But you may get a break from a black judge if you know how to act. And unfortunately, just like the brother who beat up the little white kids, some of us just don't know how to act. I mean, I, I come hard on some of this. You know, I don't know how to act either. That's another story. But I mean, <laughs> but I come hard on some of this, this, some of these situations and situations that can be avoided. And if you know that you are black and vulnerable, and if you black, you are vulnerable, try to avoid at least some of these situations. I'm glad Meek Mill is off probation. Uh, I hope he learned his lesson. But he had no business mouthing off on that sister. All right, folks, let's talk about this uh, last story here uh, before we go. Uh, actually, i got a couple of stories, but I want to definitely do this one here. Ebony Jet Magazine's photo archives uh, are being moved, folks, to the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., as well as the Getty Research Institute in Los Angeles. Uh, those two magazine archives show more than 70 years of images that chronicle the African American experience. The archives became available after Johnson Publishing Company filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy in April, hoping that the sale would, would, would cover a $13.5 million JPC owed uh, to, as a result of taking out a loan against it. Well, the buyers, which also include uh, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, paid $30 million 
for the collection. And they are going to, again, uh, those groups came together to buy the archives and will share them with uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Uh, what, what, so what you now have, what you now have, uh, Greg, is you still have Ebony and Jet. Those assets were sold to a company out of Texas. Now this photo archive is no longer a part of that. Now that's a separate deal is now being sold. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, they are going to be working with the National Museum of African American History and Culture to preserve uh, these archives and that critically important piece of black history. Absolutely. First thing I did was uh, text, reach out to my very good friend, Kinshasa Conwell, who's the deputy director of the museum, congratulating her. Because you understand, in the Smithsonian system, you have to build a museum from the ground up. So everything in the, in, in the National Museum of African American History and Culture, they had to acquire. Because mm -hmm. all stuff that's in American history and over in the other museums, they, they have that. This completely transforms the archive of the National Museum. Shout out to those black folks like Elizabeth Alexander and others who got on the phone and worked together a deal to put together with Ford because several people bid it. Melanie Hobson and George Lucas, for example, who were looking into a bid because they had given collateral on that collection as a way to float the loan for Ebony and Jet to stay in business. So they were looking into it. Um, my friend Theaster Gates in Chicago, he said, you know, it was an honor to even try to bid because he has Mr. Johnson's personal library at the Stony Island Arts Bank that he's put together. But for this to come to the National National Museum. We talk about Emmett Till's birthday. The photograph that went around the world mm. is now going to be controlled by an institution that is essential to us. One final thing. It isn't just Ebony. It isn't just Jet. You've talked about Monifa Sleet a lot of times on this show. It's not just the Dr. King photographs. It's also Black World and Negro Digest. The history of Pan-Africanism and Black Nationalism is in those mm. Ebony archives. So, you know, in well, I'll say one other thing. $30 million ain't no money. Black people, you make this point all the time, Roland. We got to support our institutions. It shouldn't take white foundations and an act of charity because you got some black employees who reach out there and stop this for this to happen. At this, this, this one right here is transformative. Let's not, let's not do this again. Come on, black folks. Let's, let's support each other so we don't have to have this conversation holding our breath again. Julian. The loss of uh, Ebony and Jet in terms of circulation has been a, a body blow to the black community. This is how, you know, we all basically came together around imagery and culture and all of that. So uh, the fact that the museum has it does make me very happy. Uh, as Greg said, I, I remember interviewing Lonnie Bunch uh, right after the museum opened, and he talked about how it was like almost like an antique roadshow going from city to city to acquire stuff. How an older white woman came and brought him, uh, I believe it was, a, it was a shawl that that was owned by a slave, an enslaved woman, and they had that on display. So to have these photographs on display is really quite amazing. But Dr. Carr is also right about this. We are squandering our history. We're literally, as we sit here, squandering that history, and it's really shameful. We don't know our history. 1919, the Red Summer, 100 years later, we still see black people being massacred. And, and, but, but when you talk to younger black folk, they don't know anything about the Red Summer because you will not find it in anybody's history book. So to have this stuff at our museum, at our museum, is important. And everybody who has $50 ought to become a member of that museum. You don't have to give a grand or two. Give $50. Take a, take a slice of that because they're being judged by their fundraising. And, you know, there's a government appropriation, but they've also got to do their fundraising. Michael, your thoughts? Very quickly, I mean, the first magazine probably ever read was Jet. Um, my grandmother had a stack of them, um, and you know they would come in the mail. And the first place they would go was on the um, in the kitchen table or the kind of kitchen nook table, 
The second place they would go was on the back of the bathroom door in the little in the little magazine rack. Yes, sir. So Jet was really the first magazine, um, you know, we I read as a, as a young person. So it became part of who we are. I know you mentioned the other magazines, but don't yeah. forget Ebony Man. Ebony you know, they, they came out with Ebony e Man Ebony for a minute. Ebony Jr. They touched yeah. on, on a whole lot of pieces. That's right. And so it's, it's part of who we are. But the, wow. the reason that you mentioned why it's not like it used to be is especially for young people, is we're now in this kind of multi-cultural kind of environment. Everyone thinks, oh, we're all mixed up. We're all, and, and so everyone's forgetting. But if you go to certain communities in this country, Come on. that may be true, but they still, you talk, you talk to some Italians, Italy, they, they will tell you exactly where their grandparents were born, where, what city they were born in in Italy. Same with the Irish. Same, and not, clearly, they came in a different way. I'm not suggesting that. But that means maybe we should even be stronger about coming together and understanding our history. So, you know, we had some challenges, it. but thank goodness for the thing. You can swab your mouth now. You can do the best you can to find out who you are. Mm. Nope. Yeah. All right, folks, here we go here. Um, last segment. Oh, here Crazy we go. Crazy as white folks. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. What they up to now? All the man was trying to do was propose to his woman in a romantic setting. In a Facebook post, Kathy Marie Hamlet explained that she and her fiancé, Clyde Jackson, were sitting at a table outside the Angry Orchid gift shop when the female security guard approached them and accused Jackson of stealing a shirt and asked to check his pockets. He emptied his pockets and they found nothing. But they interrupted them three times, once in the middle of him popping the question. The couple, of course, is black, left the park, and staff uh, followed them all the way to the parking lot as they left. Damn, Greg, we can't even propose. Look here, man. It's rolling. It's so funny, man. Chicago, I mean, of course, Ebony and Jet is a Chicago story. I'm thinking about Ida B. Wells, who wrote about her uh, friend who was lynched at a grocery Tommy store Moss. that they owned in Memphis. Yeah. And they ended up burning Ivy Wells' printing press down. That's how she ended up going to Chicago. But it started with some little children, black kids and white kids, fighting in a marbles game out there in mm. front of the place. When, 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 when we read about this today, this man is emptying his pockets looking for a T-shirt, and he's trying to hide the box with the ring in it so he's got his imp in his pockets trying to keep the box concealed. Now he's proposing. She comes back and says, well, they told me that you gave it to her. So now she got to empty her pocketbook. And then when his friends come to celebrate, they, then they, they come back and say, well, now they said they pass it around. So all y'all empty y'all pockets. This is how what Dr. Malvo just said, Julianne just said. This is how the Red Summer jumped off in Chicago. These white boys were throwing rocks at a black kid in Lake Michigan, and when the rocks hit him and killed him, the rumor spread, and before you knew it, all these black people and white people dead in the city of Chicago. Y'all gonna mess with the right one in a minute. And it ain't gonna be no filming and talking. It's gonna be a race war in this country. But And, and I'm not saying that because I want to see one pop off, but you're not going to... But people have had enough. People have yes, had people enough. Have enough. Funerals, and funerals and weddings are the most intimate moments for black people. You break up the right one's proposal it. and see what happens. 
you know, this this story Julia. made me want it made me want to cry, made me want to scream because, like you said, brother man's just trying to propose. I mean, that's supposed to be a moment that they cherish, uh, that they remember that 50 years or 30 years from now they talk about. Remember that time? Now it's gonna be remember that time the stupid white people interrupted us while while I was proposing to you. So the the racial tinge is there. Langston Hughes talked about something called the sweet fly paper of life. Mm. That's a little joy, just a little detritus. Uh, the fact that you get to smile when you're on a beast or something like that. These people have taken away some of our fly paper. And for this couple, that's what happened. Taking away, literally stealing their joy. And I hope that these folks, uh, they posted their pictures. I hope somebody does something to somebody. I'm going to go as far as Greg, although, uh, you know, <laughs> if we in the trenches, brother, I got your back. Yes. <laughs> if we must die, let us nobly die. Let us not be like hogs, <laughs> hunted and killed. No, no, no. Well, I'll, 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 I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Michael. Greg is right. They gonna roll up on the wrong one, and they are gonna be emptying something else out their pockets. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, we've obviously talked about this all the time. We love this segment that, uh, that you do. I love how you make it look like another show. It's great. We love the little video. <laughs> it is another it, show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess it is. But I, I tell you what, it is. It is. It's still the tone is set by 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And people think they can do whatever they want mm -hmm. to people of color, that they're empowered, they're emboldened to do it. But usually when you do these segments, Roland, when something like this happens, people lose their job. Did this person mm -hmm. get fired? Uh, not yet, but uh, I got to say it might be coming. Very good. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, and look, sue and use that money for the honeymoon. There you go. <laughs> Y'all could go all the way there to Tahiti go. with that. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, y'all. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm done. Here's a piece. Uh, I gotta hop on a plane. Uh, I'm leaving Las Vegas, the Alpha Kitchen Convention, flying to Indianapolis. Uh, we have our school choices, the Black Choice Town Hall, taking place on tomorrow at the National Urban League Convention. Uh, and then I am flying to Houston as soon as we're done. Uh, my my cousin P.J. Simeon, who passed away in a car accident last week, his wake is tomorrow night. Uh, from 6 to 9 p.m., and so I'm going to attend his wake. So tomorrow, uh, what we're going to do on the show, we're going to have a couple of things that we're going to be broadcasting. First and foremost, uh, we're going to rebroadcast that panel last night uh, from the Alpha Convention that I moderated. But two, Dondre Whitfield and Devon Franklin had a black manhood conversation at the Global United Fellowship Conference in the Bahamas. Uh, it was an unbelievable, honest, and raw conversation. We're going to have that for you as well. Uh, this is why Roland Martin Unfiltered matters. First and foremost, at the NAACP convention, here at the Alpha convention, going to the National Urban League convention, uh, being able to broadcast from the Global United Fellowship, all those different things. This is us controlling our narrative. This is us providing a resource of information that, is, that you're not getting anywhere else. Uh, and I'm telling you right now, all these black websites, all these black cable, all these black cable networks, none of them are doing what we are doing at Roller Martin Unfiltered, which is why we need you to support us, join our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, our goal is to get all of the folks who are watching, all of our followers, to give just 50 bucks for the whole year to join our fan club and give that. It's real simple, folks. If 20,000, 20,000 total, it just took, we were just talking about the Jeopardy Jet uh, archives, if 20,000 of our followers on social media who watch this show give an average of 50 bucks to each. This show is paid for without a single dime from advertising. That means when we travel, we're going to be at the Jeffrey Osborne Golf Classic uh, next week. Also next week, I'm going to be at Reverend Jim Clyburn's golf tournament, but he does raise tons of money for scholarships for black kids there in South Carolina. This is why 
We Matter. Well, also the following week will be the National Association of Black Journalists Convention uh, there in Miami. This is about us controlling our narrative, telling our story, and speaking our truth. And so we want you to support us. Go to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com to please join uh, our fan club. I got to go. Uh, of course, I know, Michael, you hating on the outfit because you ain't able to wear these colors so well. Uh, and, Greg, I know you sitting here trying to take it off of me, yeah, and I'm going to hide it from you. I am. Uh, <laughs> I am. And, y'all, condolences. I was going to say condolences for your yeah, cousin, man. I know yeah. y'all are very close, brother. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Uh, and so it was great seeing so many of the brothers here, uh, here as well. And so uh, I'll be uh, with his family tomorrow night. Excuse me, tomorrow night uh, in Houston. All right, folks, I got to go. I want to thank all of you. Uh, and, Julian, next time you're on, uh, I got something for you uh, from Method Man uh, from uh, the American Black Film Festival. Uh, it's, uh, it looked look like uh, you got a hip-hop with a little crush. Uh, uh, he said, "Yeah, the redhead one. Oh, the redhead one. Oh, so, oh yeah, Greg. Oh, 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 wait till next week. Oh, we're we'll going back on. We gonna, oh. we gonna play that for folks. Wu Tang, oh, yeah. baby. Wu Tang. Oh, I, got it. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Hey, just I got me it. Cougar. So we're gonna have that for y'all next week. Uh, uh, all right, y'all. Because trust me, Method Man, he watches the show uh, via YouTube, and he said, "Yeah, man, that redheaded one." And I was like, "Redheaded one." He was like, you know, he said the redheaded one. He said, he said the yellow bone one. I was like, oh, you mean Giuliani? He's like, yeah. You better watch Johnny Blaze. Then. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, he ain't nothing to play with. Got, <laughs> I got the video, Greg. Oh, I no. can't wait to play it next week. Tune in. Oh yeah. All right, folks, I gotta go. Uh, I'll see y'all tomorrow. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so. Exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. 
find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.